welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Well, today we're going to talk about a concept called the Chinese dream. And for our listeners in South Africa, this may have a little bit of familiarity to it. If on September twentieth of this year you happen to be reading the Mail and Guardian newspaper, you might have seen a a, a piece written by a Chinese ambassador Tian Xuejun. Uh, he also published the post in a magazine as well called The Thinker, and he, he the, the the article is called. Chinese dream, a dream for peace, development, cooperation, and win-win outcomes for all. Now, to some people, that may sound like just the same kind of propaganda blather that we've been hearing out of the Chinese about win-win, mutual benefit, non-interference. But there's actually something very, very important here, and it's this concept of the Chinese dream. And this is something important because it's emerging in Chinese politics to be a central theme of the presidency of Xi Jinping. And what does it mean? And there are some very, very strong connections to Africa. Uh, that are here in terms of the role model that this theme could be playing for Africa, the branding that China is trying to put out that really positions itself uh, in contrast to the West, and also this idea of the rejuvenation of the Chinese state. So, Kobus, before I get into a little bit of the background on on what this is, uh, what, in your opinion, is the relevance? Of the Chinese dream for an African audience, and why did uh, Ambassador Tian actually go ahead and, and, and take that opportunity in both Thinker and in Mail and Guardian to write about the Chinese dream? I think one of the reasons, one one of the kind of news hooks for that is that this is the fifteenth year of of uh, China South African um, diplomatic relations. So there's been a, a series of events commemorating that, and part of that has been to push uh, this idea of 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 win win development and you know kind of a, China representing a new vision in the world and a new vision for Africa, um, and you know kind of you know also kind of uh, stroking the ego. Of, of South Africa to a certain extent, saying that China and South Africa both represent new visions for Africa. Um, you know, so, so this has been a theme that has been running, you know, kind of through throughout the year. Um, and, you know, in, in, a, in a wider scheme, it also, it starts into certain kind of ways how South Africa is trying to, as has been trying over the last decade, has been trying to position itself within Africa, particularly under the rubric of the African Renaissance, which is, uh, which was coined by the previous president, Tabu Becky, um, and also had this kind of, um, you know, people who are, who are interested in Asian development might think of it as a little bit like the, the Japanese flying geese model, you know, kind of where... Um, where you know, kind of South Africa would be the goose flying in front, you know, and the whole of Africa would be following. Um, and you know, that, that's that's oversimplifying it, and I'm sure like some African studies people are now shouting at their iPods. But uh, you know, the the uh, you know that the, there is that kind of kind of idea of moral leadership and regeneration and Africa kind of finding finding it's it's you know kind of something that had been robbed from it by by colonialism in the past and re- rediscovering that in the future okay so this you've brought up a couple of key points here that I want to touch on and this is again why the parallels between China and Africa are quite interesting to talk about you've talked about the African Renaissance and that's that's a concept that we've started to see in the popular media over the past year year and a half that really relates to this kind of surging African economy is something like seven out of the top 15 or 20 of the fastest growing economies in the world are in Africa. And again, this renaissance in China, the word is rejuvenation. And I think that's a really interesting concept. So when we look at the Chinese dream as broken down 
by the Chinese government. It's it's really categorized into four different distinct areas. So one, national rejuvenation, and this is this idea that. Up until the century of humiliation is what the Chinese referred to it, which was the really effectively the, the, the 20th century uh, up until the, the communist revolution, um, China suffered under the hands of uh, the, the British, the Germans, the French. Uh, I think it was the Germans, but certainly the, 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 the Americans uh, and, and, and most notably the Japanese as well. So this idea that the, the China was the supreme global power for a thousand years. It then ran into colonialism and imperialism, stumbled, and now we're seeing the rejuvenation of China to reemerge as the world's preeminent superpower. Then the second part is the improvement of people's livelihoods. The third part is the construction of a better society. The fourth part is the military strengthening. Now, Robert Lawrence Kuhn, who is an investment banker and author, he kind of broke it down, this idea of the Chinese dream, into you know these four, into, into some using slightly different language. And then, then I want to get back to you, Kobus, on, the, the, again, the link to Africa. He talked about instead of national rejuvenation, he talked about strong China, economically, politically, uh, and diplomatically. He talked also about a civilized China, which is equality, fairness, morality. Uh, And then he he talked about the idea of harmony and harmonious China. This is a very important theme within Chinese history uh, of amity and uh, among social classes. And then finally, a beautiful China, which is pollution and the, and the environment. So you take those four key concepts, bundle them together, and that's what emerges as the Chinese dream. Kobus, there are some parallels here with Africa, and this is why I think the Chinese are going to start using this, this concept much more aggressively in their African messaging, uh, particularly as it relates to colonialism. One of the key contrasts between the American dream and the Chinese dream is there's this undercurrent of colonialism that the Chinese, like Africans, have emerged from their own periods of humiliation at the hands of Western colonialism. And that might be a point of bonding between the two that we might see come from uh, from more diplomats like Ambassador Tian. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, I think there's there's an, another theme that is also very similar is that there's a there's a theme in the Chinese dream of of not only greatness that is kind of sullied by colonialism, but also you know a, a large body of knowledge that that became tarnished and devalued because of imperialism and now has to be rediscovered, and that has been uh, a theme in in some Africanist kind of discourse as well. You know, so there's a lot of of this kind of you know, kind of people who say, yes, but astronomy was actually, you know, kind of invented in Africa. All of the, you know, math, mathematics was invented in Africa originally. We all come from Africa originally. So there is this, this idea that, you know, kind of these obviously a, a lot of Africans are, you know, they were, um, you know, a lot of colonialism, you know, kind of heard to the image of Africa by, by, by talking about it as a big void where there really was nothing until, until Western discourse or Western kind of ideas were inserted there. Um, and there's a lot of kind of fighting against that um, and saying, no, you know, kind of, there's all these kind of bodies of knowledge of, of kind of Africanist knowledge um, that were then destroyed by the colonialists. And, um, you know, kind of, and, and we need to regenerate them. Frequently, you know, uh, you know, what those would exactly be are sometimes left quite fuzzy. Of course. Now, you know, countries just like products or companies uh, try to brand themselves. 
certainly the United States has done very, very well with this concept of the American dream. And the American dream is this idea of middle-class success, of having the white picket fence, the home. It's this ideal of independence, and it's a very individual story that I worked hard and earned money to support my family, and I have achieved a certain level of material success. Uh, but that's just because of my hard work. What's interesting about the Chinese dream is it's not an individual concept. It's very much a collective concept. And that, I think, would actually play better uh, in, in Africa than the American dream in that sense. Of course, people all want the materialism that goes with it. But I think there's something very interesting here, and I'd like to get your feedback on this. The past couple weeks have come out with a, a couple of different surveys, but the one that I want to focus on is the, Glow, the, the Pew Global uh, Survey that really rated China uh, as being in an abysmal position when it comes to global branding and the perceptions of China around the world. They're terrible in the United States. They're not very good in Africa. We've talked about this on a couple of different occasions on the show, that despite the fact that China is investing billions of dollars in media and, and, and all sorts of cultural exchanges and academic exchanges, public perception and in Africa of China remains very, very low, particularly in contrast to the United States. Um, and so I'm wondering if this new branding, if you will, might actually change that. And the reason why is that by focusing on an economic story and less on a political story, that Africans may respond more effectively. And the reason I'm asking you this now, Kobus, is because I think it was last year or earlier this year, you edited a, an academic journal, and one of the articles in that journal was from a pair of researchers who pointed out that when the story is framed as China being a model for success, their public opinion goes up much, much more than when it's done in terms of the environment or politics or other areas. So could the Chinese dream be something that guides China to higher public opinion ratings uh, based on the fact that it's following an economic model, not necessarily a political model? Yeah, um, this work that you're referring to, it was done by Yaroslav Jura and Kaya Kaluzinska, um, and they pointed out that um, that reporting about economic success and big deals, big you know kind of projects and so on being being signed, that actually operated like a form of soft power. Um, and obviously, you know, in the past, the original coining of soft power, um, you know, tended to, to think of economic power in, in on its in itself as a form of hard power. So. So you would, you know, that a state would use as a coercive power. Um, but they made the point that in, in the case of, of African newspapers reporting um, on China, um, that actually, you know, operated as a form of branding or like popularity and, you know, um, building the brand of China with, within African consciousness as, as this kind of brand of success. You know, so so that 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 forms a part of. Uh, there's a flip side there, which is a kind of a bad branding that 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 China has to deal with in Africa, which is this idea of these m massive monolithic companies, you know, kind of with with worker bees, you know, kind of you know being sent out, you know, from a central for central Beijing. So, for example, um, you know, kind of there's been a, a a ton of research done on this rumor in Africa that um, that Chinese companies use Chinese prisoners as workers. Um, and it's been completely debunked. There's no Chinese companies use Chinese prisoners for workers, but that it just won't die. Like when you when you speak to Africans about Chinese business, that story keeps coming up in surprisingly high levels. Like frequently, people in government would actually mention that as something that they know or something that they've heard, while it's actually not. It doesn't exist. Yeah. 
Um, so, you know, so this idea of, of, of economic success over alles is, um, is this, you know, kind of, it has a f- kind of a flip side, you know, kind of where, where it makes China look bad. So the, the, the trick is to humanize it and to, to balance it, I think. Yeah, and I think there, there is a good story for the Chinese to tell on their economic success of the past 30 years. And there are a lot of similarities to Africa's own economic development and the potential that stands in Africa. So, um, you, you know, there's another aspect of this that I think is very interesting that I wanted to get your feedback on, and it has to do with the military side of it. So part of the rejuvenation of the Chinese state is also the expansion of Chinese nationalism, particularly in the realm of the military. And, and this is something that we're starting to see more evident in China. There's an excellent, excellent commentator on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. His name is Stephen Guo. He, uh, I think he lives in South Africa. And so I'm going to actually kind of plead some humility here that he knows a lot more on the Chinese military than I do. However, we have seen the presence of the Chinese military off the coast of, uh, of Somalia participating in uh, multinational anti-piracy operations. We've now seen 140 riot police who are now operating in Liberia. Uh, there's talk of more private military contractors protecting Chinese installations and personnel throughout Africa. So as the Chinese footprint grows in the Middle East and Africa, we can always assume that the Chinese military presence may come to add security to that. And also, as the United States potentially retreats from these areas uh, due to its own political dysfunction, due to its own uh, budget cuts that it has to deal with, and the fact that it's becoming less reliant on Africa and the Middle East for oil, that China may actually end up filling that void. Do you think that if the Chinese start to emerge more as a military power in the next 10 years, and I don't want to say this in the context of the big bad boogeyman coming to take over Africa, what I'm trying to say is that participating more in multinational operations, more UN peacekeeping operations, protecting its own people, maybe hardening some of the security around its own diplomatic installations, but we start to see armed Chinese security private or otherwise, uh, in Africa, what effect do you think that will have on its branding and its perception? Um, you know, it's difficult for me to say. Um, I think at the moment there is still not a lot of, of uh, not a strong perception in Africa of, of China as a military presence in Africa because they've been, it's been so small. Um, you know, so... You know, in terms of private security, I mean, lots of lots of companies, lots of places have private security. There's a lot of private security guards in in African cities, particularly in South Africa. I mean, South Africa more than anywhere. But um, but you know, kind of, it's it's a big part of the African landscape, and and that's true for for lots of different places, including lots of African businesses. Um, in terms of UN peacekeeping, I would guess um, a lot of Africans would actually welcome that. Um, you know, to a certain extent, um, depending on depending on, on Conduct um, so far, um, you know, because the Chinese peacekeepers, I haven't heard any any kind of complaints about them so far. There might be some, but I haven't heard them. Um, you know, I've heard more complaints about other peacekeepers than than about Chinese ones. Um, piracy, certainly, you know, kind of. I think I think that's quite a welcome thing to do in, in Africa. Um, you know, kind of. I think you know the, the a larger military presence would be something that that at the moment would be difficult to imagine, but I don't think it's necessarily impossible. Yeah. But it would it would necessarily then also imply a, a larger kind of general presence of China, you know, as a whole, kind of yeah. you know, kind of moving beyond the the, the kind of 
shopping malls and you know and big projects where there are at the moment. Well, let me. The reason I bring up the military side, okay. So the relevance to Africa may not be direct, but certainly as it relates to the to the ideology of the Chinese dream as it's put forward by Xi Jinping, it has a very strong military side to it. So the imagery that the Chinese are using is best reflected in a video by Chen Sisi, and I really recommend you go to YouTube and look up C H E N. S I S I. She is a, a folk song performer, and and she was kind of brought out to to kind of articulate the Chinese dream in song. And it's fascinating to see the the icons and the iconography they use to complement her song about. And it's called Chinese Dream, Zhongguomeng, and it's of the brand new. Uh, Chinese aircraft carrier. Uh, it's this flag waving with the military, and there's a very, very strong nationalist, uh, very, very militaristic message that's there. Uh, again, echoing a lot of the iconography that we see out of the United States. So there's nothing unique about what the Chinese are doing, but it does raise that issue that I think is interesting. The last point I'd like to ask you about relates to the emergence of China as the preeminent global power. And for a lot of Americans and Europeans, they scoff at this concept. It's something that is just too hard to imagine. But the, you know, they, they don't think of China as being the dominant power. But what ends up happening when you become the largest economy in the world, you get to write the rules. That was the case with the British in the, in the 19th century. It was the case with the Americans in the 20th century. And it's going to be the case with the Chinese. We've already seen it that they have, you know, shut down World Trade Organization talks. Uh, because of the agricultural subsidies. That's something that Africa really benefits from. Uh, they have taken a stand, as we saw a couple weeks ago, with the ICC in, in, in kind of subtle support of Kenya. They are throwing their weight around in ways that benefit far more the developing world than potentially the United States, Japan, and some of the, the established powers. So I guess my question to you is that as we see China in 2019, which is when the, ex- the expectation is that they will emerge as the world's largest economy, which de facto will make them the preeminent power, economically at least, um, and then eventually they will get to grow that into political power. My question is, how will that be greeted in Africa, in your opinion? Is that something that, again, you expect to be with some apprehension, as we've seen in the, in the Pew Global Survey? Or do you actually look at it as the Africans maybe have a chance to make a break after centuries of, of abuse at the hands of the European powers and the American rule that have done nothing more than destabilize the continent for so long that this is an opportunity to break with history? Yeah, I think um, what's going to be incredibly interesting is to see to which extent that global power and uh, that name of of be, being a uh, you know being the largest economy to which extent or how it's balanced with what will at that stage still be relatively low GDP per capita mm-hmm. in China. You know, so individual Chinese are not going to be necessarily that rich. Um, you know, and and um, you know, and the you know, also in, in Xi Jinping's, you know, kind of own kind of parlance that they're, they're talking about, you know, kind of building a moderately prosperous society. Um, so if if China, you know, kind of becomes this interesting mix of being both in certain ways a developing country and also yet still the biggest economy in the world, that will like be this opposite day kind of like shifting of poles, you know, kind of in how, how Africa will be able to think of itself. Because then it joins this club of 
of countries that are simultaneously developing and world leaders, which will then also be India and Brazil and so on. Um, you know, and that will probably then lead to a new, a new version of, you know, or the culmination of something, you know, kind of that we've seen from the 1950s, which some people have been calling Bandung romance. Obviously, calling it, you know, kind of the, the relationship between between China and other, you know, kind of other third world countries and developing countries um, coming from from the, the kind of big summit of non-aligned countries that was held in Bandung in 1955. Um, so this idea of we all developing together in a direction, you know, the, that Farid Zakaria has been has been writing about a few years ago about the, the rise of the rest, you know, of the world. In, um, in the post-American yeah, world. It, yeah, and what yes, Farid Zakaria talked about in the post-American yeah. world. And it's interesting because uh, just a couple weeks ago, Xinhua came out with a an op-ed which talked about de-Americanizing the global economy. So these are all part of the same construct and the same themes that seem to be emerging that's saying the United States, uh, you know, we need to start considering a world where the U.S. and even the dollar may not be the centerpiece of global capitalism and, and global power. Yeah. What I was wondering and, and what I was, was wanted to ask you is what, one, of the, 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 one of the aspects that seem to me to be lacking in this story is, um, is that China... It's difficult to say it that and not to sound like I'm stereotyping cultures, but there is there's a lot of of admiration. If if I can be allowed to just talk about Africa as as a collective culture for a moment, you know, kind of without people shouting, um, there is there is I think a certain admiration for style for you know for for having uh, a certain amount of of flair. Um, in being in fashion, in movement, in music, and all of these things, you know, kind of that, that is a, a form of African cool. Um, and that makes a country like, a culture like Brazil, you know, kind of with, with its incredible soccer, its, you know, kind of its stylish people, its, its amazing music, and that feeling of like being, being, you know, not first world, but being incredibly stylish and loose. At the same time, you know that 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 is a, something that that carries a lot of weight in Africa. China at the moment, to, to me, seems incredibly staid, like really, really stiff. You know, yeah. <laughs> there's not a lot of rhythm there. Um, so, do, do, you know, do, do, do you feel the same thing? Do you see that the Chinese can overcome that, or are they going to have to re- redesign the game? In some no, kind of I don't think they're going to overcome that. I think it's going to, you know, exporting Chinese culture is going to be a very, very difficult sell. And I think so. When we talk about the Chinese dream, I think it's going to be something very difficult for the average African, uh, or the average South American, or the average South Asian to connect and relate to, because the the cultural values are so distinct and also the fact that they're, they're, the, 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 the value of their entertainment exports are not going to rival the universality of what we see coming out of Hollywood and, and, and coming out of Europe. So I think they're going to but suffer. The big, the, yeah, I think they're the, going to – So sorry to interrupt. The, the, big, the big difference there though is that the big precedent set there was Hong Kong in the 70s You know, kind of because Hong Kong – Kind of to you know through through like kung fu and martial arts movies, they to a certain extent wrote the most stylish idea of what what kind of third world anti imperialist re- resistance would be, you know. Um, and I mean that that carried a Chinese face for a while in in the in the body of of Bruce Lee. In the body of Bruce so Lee, yeah. you know. 
you know, kind of so, uh, you know, it, it's not impossible. It's you know, not impossible. And, and certainly we've seen, for example, Korean culture and Korean entertainment, K-pop, K-wave, uh, become a, a truly global phenomenon in Russia, mm. in South America, in the Philippines, all throughout Asia. So there is, there is a market for Asian pop culture. The big problem, though, is that the way that the Chinese create content, it does have to pass through this rigorous censorship. It has to pass through this, this system that is just not favorable to creativity. And I, and I think it's a big, hard sell. You know, the Chinese have been talking about these two new TV dramas that are on the air in Tanzania and really kind of, wow, look, see, here we are. And, I mean, two dramas, really? Uh, I mean, that's just pathetic when you compare it to, uh, you know, both the Koreans, the Americans, the Indians, and, and others who are exporting culture in, in much larger numbers. And this goes to the core of the problem with respect to the Chinese dream, which is legitimacy. And legitimacy comes on moral legitimacy. People still look to the United States as an ideal in part because they believe, whether it's true or not, is a separate story. But they believe that the United States offers equality, opportunity, justice, freedom, democracy. These are all ideals that are not present in the Chinese dream. And so I think that's going to be another big sell. And we've talked about this on a lot of different occasions, how the Chinese are just absolutely terrible in communicating. So if they're going to be effective in communicating the subtleties of what the Chinese dream is and how it can relate to the everyday lives of Africans, then they may have something. But I don't think they can do that on their own. They will need to hire some very, very expensive public relations agencies to accomplish that, in my opinion. Yeah, and you know, kind of, I also get the feeling that the, the images produced at the moment that speak to a Chinese market, it's going to be difficult to, to produce those images and to produce a whole different stream of images for, for the outside market because, I mean, the internet has created a, a very permeable media system. So, you know, kind of once images are created and circulated, they tend to spread. So it's, it's going to be very difficult to, to have a militarist, you know, kind of our fantastic and glorious army kind of view made for a Chinese audience and then somehow play a completely different you know, story for, for a foreign audience. But there's two realities that we have to deal with. One is the fact that the Chinese, in terms of culture, are focusing almost exclusively on their own domestic market. This, uh, this is the world's second largest film market. It will soon emerge as the largest film market in the world. Uh, bear in mind that they're only bringing in 34 foreign films every year into China, and they've still become the world's second largest box office. So they don't really care too much about the outside market because they have this huge domestic market. So that's number one. Uh, number two is whether we like it or not, whether or not Africans or Americans accept the, 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 the Chinese rise, it's here. It's coming. Uh, China, China is the world's largest oil importer. China is the world's largest cell phone market. China is the world's second largest auto uh, first, uh, first auto market. I mean, the list of one and twos in terms of what they have in market share is absolutely huge. So this is an inevitable trend that we can either accept or reject. And I think what the message coming from the Chinese is get on board now. Because if you resist, eh, it may not be to your favor in the long run. That's kind of some of the subtle undercurrent of the messaging that I'm hearing. I might be reading a little bit too much into this. Kobus, we've gone over our time. What's some final thoughts on the Chinese dream and why you think it's important for our listeners to maybe research this a little bit more? The, I think one of the, mo one of the most important reasons to, to keep a tab on it is it's going to – it's you know it's it's now been set as a meme, um, and it's going to be a theme that that keeps emerging and emerging and, and, and getting kind of embroidered in different kind of ways over over Xi Jinping's whole reign. So um, you know I think I think it's really important to to see how it 
it gets tailored to different markets because it's, that's already happening. You see the Chinese dream being sold to American audiences in certain kind of ways, to African audiences from a very developmentalist perspective. Um, I've seen it kind of being presented in, in the Indian press in other kind of ways and so on. So it's, it's going to be, it's going to shape discourse. I think um, not only in terms of China, China's bilateral relationships with these countries, but in terms of the idea of South-South cooperation, the idea of, of how, you know, kind of these rising um, developing countries are positioning themselves in the world. Um, and you might well see a Brazilian dream and a South African dream and so on, like, you know, kind of right over the horizon. And I really recommend going to Wikipedia, actually just type in Chinese dream and there's a really great kind of primer and an explanation with some links in it. They also link to an Economist article that really broke down what the Chinese dream is. And it is an important paradigm to understand the way that the Chinese are trying to, to frame their worldview, particularly Xi Jinping. This appears like it's going to be the signature ideology and the signature propaganda statement from uh, from this president. Every Chinese president has their signature line. This seems to be his, so understanding the Chinese worldview is very important. As you can hear in the background, we are playing uh, Chen Sisi uh, in Zhongguomeng, the Chinese dream. And, and again, look that up on YouTube because it is absolutely fascinating. Uh, but we'll play a little bit more of this song on our way out. And as we go out, we want to leave uh, Kobus with uh, where can people find you if they want to follow you on the internet, what you're reading and what you're thinking about these days? Um, you'll see my name on our Facebook page. I try and update. I've been a bit slow this week, um, but uh, you know, and you, you'll see my name in brackets when I when I um, respond to comments. And also, I'm on Twitter at Stadnesque. That's S T A D E N E S Q U E. One hundred and twenty thousand followers now on our Facebook page. We're just so excited. We've got a lot of great discussions going on over there related to ivory, to culture, to Africans in China, Chinese in Africans. It's just a fantastic community. And we'd love to have you come and participate. Again, that's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Uh, you can also find me over on Twitter. I'm at eolander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R, tweeting the top China in Africa headlines almost every day. And, of course, if you want to follow this podcast, the best way to find it is on iTunes. Just search for China Africa Project. Or you can find us on SoundCloud. We're on Stitcher. We're on the BlackBerry Network. And we're even on uh, the Amazon Kindle platform as well. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. We'll be back again in a few days with another episode. Until then, thank you so much for listening. Oh, see.